Well, retirement was the furthest thing from Rodney Quinn's mind when he won a race at Rose Hill on the 1st of July 2013 on a horse called Merlin Mustang. In fact, he'd been booked for rides at a provincial meeting the following Thursday and after that, he and his wife Alana had made arrangements to take off on a European holiday. A couple of days later, he slipped and twisted a knee getting out of the sauna and he was too sore to ride at that Thursday meeting. Rodney did a lot of soul-searching during that long holiday, and by the time he got home, he was heavier than he should have been, and his mind was working in a completely different way. It came as a shock to Alana and to Rodney's two daughters when he quietly announced that his riding career was over. And what a distinguished career it was. Almost 40 years in the saddle... 2,000 winners, 130 black-type racers and nine Group 1s. Let's catch up with one of racing's true quiet achievers. Great to catch up, Rod. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, how are you, John? Well, Rodney, for the first time, the thought of returning to that dreaded sweat box got the better of you. I definitely did, John, yep. Um as you said, we we went on a nice, nice long holiday, and um, yeah, when I come back from that, I just couldn't uh, get my head around getting back in the sauna and getting the weight off. Unfortunately, mm. you'd always been able to handle it in, in previous years, hadn't you? You know, you you may have thought you'd come to the end of your tether, time and time again, but somehow you were always able to get back into the swing of it. Yeah, always sort of pushed through, and I think. Um, you know, just just we were really wanting to keep riding. You know, it sort of kept you going and um, mm. got you through those hard times. But uh, unfortunately, you sort of get to the end of it, and um, it gets too much for you eventually. What was the reaction of Alana and the girls when you dropped the bombshell? Uh, Alana was extremely happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was extremely happy, and um, you sort of don't realise until. Till um, you say that you're going to retire, that the sort of pressure that you put on your family with you um, going around in races all the time, you never think of, you never think of that side of it, you know. Uh, well, I know I never did, mm. and uh, Lana never ever said anything either. Um, but how worried she was every day, and it sort of took a lot of pressure off her, and she was uh, quite relieved actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about the girls? Uh, they were a little bit surprised, yeah, but. Um, you know, that it sort of happened at that stage, but uh, they knew that it was sort of coming to an end. Yeah. Um, so so it, uh, it was a bit of a surprise when it happened, but they knew it was, you know, on the way. Rod, let's find out what you're doing currently, and then we'll go back and review your great riding career. Now, you'd hoped to find a career in racing, uh, and you were highly delighted when your old friend Morris Logue of Racing New South Wales called you uh, to offer you a position as a mentor of apprentice jockeys. Now, what does the job entail? Well, it mainly entails, John, uh, just really giving giving the young apprentices advice um, on, uh, you know, trying to correct any problems that they have, helping them out with the stewards on, on race days. I go to the races. And uh, I watch their rides, and after the races, we go through their rides. Or if they've got any problems during the day, they come and see me. And I go in the steward's room to help them out there as well. And um, 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite good and uh, it keeps me uh, in the game, which is fantastic, and uh, keeps me in touch with 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 people. And um, yeah, it's good when you can can help one out and um, they go out and ride a winner. It's it's uh, quite satisfying actually. How many race meetings a week do you attend? Uh, I do generally two meet two to three meetings a week. Yeah. Mm. Kembla Grange, I think, is a regular venue for you. Yeah, I just about do Kembla Grange every meeting. Um, when I first sort of started off, I was doing just Kembla and Warwick Farm. But now I sort of do Hawkesbury and Goulburn and Narran. Mm. Um, sort of just, just the areas where, you know, mostly the apprentices go to, to sort of learn their trade, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Rod, you were a third-generation jockey. Your grandfather, Sai, was a bush jockey and from all reports a pretty good one. Was his Christian name an abbreviation of a longer name? Sai, C-Y? No, that, that was it, just Sai, C-Y, yeah. yeah. It was no abbreviation, that was just his name. How well do you remember your granddad? Uh, quite, quite well, actually. Like, um, he, he, they had a farm when I was growing up, and I spent quite a lot of time with um, my grandfather and grandmother out on the farm. And mm. he actually um, bought me my first horse and um, kept it out on the farm for ages till I was sort of uh, old enough to ride it. And um, mm. yeah, so I remember my grandfather quite well, and I spent quite a lot of time with him as a, as a boy. Your late dad, Kevin, rode as an amateur. One of his wins was the Walga Diggers Cup on a horse called Bankbrook. And, Rod, I've got an idea Bankbrook raced in Sydney on the Metropolitan tracks later on. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know for sure, John. Um, but, again, I sort of can remember Dad riding. I used to go to the races with him quite a bit when he was doing the amateur circuit. Um and, you know, Dad, Dad was quite successful as well. Um, and uh, then when he finished riding it, he actually became a steward in the Central West uh, for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. I think he was a steward there. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I can remember running into him at that big meeting at Warren every yeah, year. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he was always, up, yeah. yep, always the first to come over and say hello. I remember your dad very well indeed. Now, yeah. Rod, his appointment as a stipendiary steward with the WDRA really changed the course of your life because under the rules of racing, you were not allowed to ride at race meetings under his jurisdiction. Now, you were apprenticed to Ray Burton at Ningen and Ray solved all of your problems when he decided to make the move to Warwick Farm and take you with him. Ah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's sort of... um Helped out quite a lot. Um, yeah, you were right there. I, I couldn't ride at a meeting if Dad was the only steward officiating. So um, it cost me a few rides and a few winners. And uh, when I was sort of starting off, and uh, I think it upset Dad most probably a lot more than it upset me. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, then when um, Ray moved to Sydney, that sort of uh, sorted out all those problems for me. You had a very good apprenticeship too in Sydney and I can remember in one particular season you all but won the Apprentices Premiership. I think it came down to the last day. Was Mark de Montfort your chief rival? He certainly was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a bit of a ding-dong fight through the season but uh, it was too good for me at the end. Only a win or two in it though. 
Yeah, I don't think there was a lot in it, John. It's just uh, it's going back a fair way now, and as I didn't win it, I, I don't sort of remember that much. <laughs> no, no, of course. Rod, is it true that at this stage of your career, people were telling you every day that you were too big, that you couldn't possibly last as a jockey? Yeah, that's exactly right, John. Um, sort of, I, I don't know. You know, I thought I was quite small when I started off. I was quite light, but of course the weight scale was much different in those days as to what it is today. But um, yeah, I was like 39 kilos when I started riding, and everybody in the game just kept saying, "You're too big. You won't last." And um, mm. and then when we come to Sydney, I had to get a a license to uh, change my license over to Sydney, and um, the racing steward there told me that it was a waste of time. I was too big. <laughs> Um, and he wasn't going to give me a license, but I'd already had a ride at Ramwick, so um, mm. he sort of had to give me a license. And he sort of said, "Won't matter anyway. You'll be back in the bush where you come from in, in six months." And <laughs> <laughs> he was a good yeah. judge. He was a good judge. Yeah, like yeah. Forty years, forty years later, I'm still, I was still here. Yeah. yeah. Ray Burton had a big grey mare, uh, probably the star of his team at the time, Rod. And this was yeah. the mare to kickstart your career. I'll never forget her. Her name was Never Despair, and wasn't she a big girl? She was huge, John. Yeah, she was. Uh, I think she was actually seventeen two hands, mm. uh, which is quite big for a horse. Yeah. And um, yeah, she she uh, she got me going quite well as an apprentice. She 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 was the slowest horse in the world at track work of a morning. Mm. <laughs> And she turned up race day and she was a different horse altogether. So, uh, she never worked well. Every gallop. She, she, could, she never won a gallop in her life. Good heavens. And um, I remember one, one year, just before she won the Queen of the Turf, actually, she worked with uh, Clary Connor's horse, Ben Sin. I don't know if you remember. remember. Mm, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, she worked with Ben Sind and he actually beat her in a tra- in a track gallop by 100, 100 yards. Yeah. And, and it was Golden Slipper Day. She was in the first race, Queen of the Turf. She came out and won. Clary thought his horse was unbeatable later in the day. Mm. Of course, he got beat. <laughs> yeah. And, and your mare won the Queen of the Turf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is nowadays a Group 1. It is, yep, that's correct, yep. Rod, there were so many great jockeys in Sydney in the 1970s that you ah. decided to concentrate on the Saturday meetings at Newcastle and Kembla, and you right, absolutely yep. dominated at Kembla to the extent that you got a nickname, I, I vividly recall, the King of Kembla. <laughs> yeah, that's right, John. I, just, I think I won eight or nine premierships in a row down at Kembla. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, the, the riding routes in Sydney were that strong at that time and um, I'd sort of just come out of my, my apprenticeship. It was pretty tough going. I was sort of heavy and, and yeah, as you said, I decided to concentrate on, on those meetings and um, it, it, it sort of stood me quite well for the future because it got me going, got me a lot of connections and uh, I eventually worked my way back into Sydney. Now, Rod... Your first Group 1 winner was a horse called Command Module in the 1978 George Ryder Stakes at Rose Hill, 
He was trained by Jack Denham for Stan Fox, who I think had passed away three or four years earlier. And he must have been a three-year-old, was he? Because he had a feather weight. I can't believe you rode him at that weight. Well, I was only, you know, I think I was, I was 17 or 18 then, so I was still sort of just just on the verge of being light enough. He had 48 kilos. That's how actually how I got the ride. I only got the ride half an hour before the race. Mm. Um, actually, David Ferner was supposed to ride the horse, and he was too heavy. And... Um, I scraped in and made the 48, and, yeah, he, he won. As your first group won. I mean, that was a very big day, wasn't it, for a young jockey, a significant day to win a, a group one race at that tender age. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's um, it's sort of funny. At that stage, I think sort of group one racing wasn't, you know, it's, uh wasn't thought of as it is today, you know, mm-hmm. such a big thing. It was just sort of the big race of the day, and, yeah, and uh, but you know it was a fantastic thrill to sort of win that sort of race, especially for for a trainer like Jack Denham at that stage of my career, you know. Yeah, and that was a big thrill. Well, mate, it wasn't long after that, and it became painfully obvious that if you wanted to stay in the game, the sauna would have to be your second home, and that's the way it was. <laughs> that's the way it was, all right. For um, yeah, for. Well, virtually from the time I was 17 till I finished riding, yeah. But um, you sort of learn how to deal with it and learn how to use uh, the sauna to your advantage, I suppose. It most probably took me about 10 years to um, to actually learn how to, to use the sauna and, and control my weight properly as though I was still sort of uh, strong and capable enough to to do mm. my job when I got to the races, you know. But uh, once I sort of worked that out, it become a, a little easier. Yeah. Um, to get through, but it was still a, it's a really grind for most jockeys that have got oh, yeah. problems. Your wife Alana told me once, Rob, that right through those torturous years, you never ever took it out on her or the kids. You just quietly come back inside, keep to yourself, uh, stay out of trouble. And uh, really, Alana said it could have been much worse for her and the and the girls. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, there's no doubt in the world that uh, when you're wasting and not eating and you're sweating and riding, and, uh, certainly gives you a little bit of a short temper. Mm. Um, but I definitely separated family and, and work um, mm. in, in that respect. Um, but in saying that too, Alana and uh, she knew very well what sort of I was going through. So all the morning she knew what my routine was, and sh- and she just let me let me go with that, you know. Yeah. So that was a big help as well. Rod, an amazing thing happened pretty late in your career when your weight suddenly stabilised. For a while there, you didn't need to be in the sauna quite as much. And I, you were mystified yourself at the time. Yeah, I couldn't work it out whatsoever, John. I, I actually thought I must have been, um, you know, must have had, must have been sick or had cancer or something. I just mm. couldn't couldn't believe that I was walking around like fifty two kilos and um, mm. not sweating and hard and oh, I was still dieting, like still on yeah. the diet, but but nowhere near as hard as what I, I normally was and. Uh, and I wasn't sweating. I, I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. But uh, 
was a really nice 18 months, two years. <laughs> oh, I remember you telling me you you were completely mystified by it. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And, um, and sort of lucky enough that uh, it sort of won me a Sydney Cup, you know. Been, yeah, yeah. Been that weight because... Um, because I was light, I only sort of had only had one ride that day, and it had a heavy weight. And I was actually home having a sleep, and got a call to um, to ride uh, stand again. Stand again in the Sydney Cup, and he only, I think he had fifty three or something. Oh, maybe fifty three and a half. So, mm. so I was sort of just lucky. I was light at that period, and um, yeah, I just got up and got dressed and went to the races. Yeah. Yeah, and that horse was trained by Chris Waller. It was one of his early Group 1 winners. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, he actually had the favourite in it. I think he had three or four in the race that year. He actually had the favourite in it, which fell mm. um, at the 600. And yeah, I'll stand again. Got away with it for me, which was great. That was your last Group 1 winner? Uh, my second last. Oh, um, Dr Doom? Dr Doom was the last one, yeah. That's right. Pain, yeah. Yeah, he was my last one. Rod, you had a long association with the Crown Lodge organisation at Warwick Farm, probably close to 20 years all up. Now, yes. you never yep. held the number one riding job, but no. I always felt you you wouldn't have wanted it anyway. Uh, not really. Um, as you said, I was there for 20 years and... I've seen a lot of number one jockeys come and go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the front door and out the back. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a, it was a pretty tough position to hold, um, a lot of pressure. Um, you know, you're on most of the number one picks in the stable. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I hooked up with Crown Lodge in my – Kimbler days, actually, and mm. um, I started riding for Crown Lodge to be more or less their provincial Kimbler jockey, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it just went on and on from there and, um, you know, and, and also riding for that stable also kept me riding for as long as I did, I think, because it, it made my life much easier, you know, to have it with a stable like that behind you. Absolutely, and a guarantee of half a dozen rides a week. Yeah, exactly. And um, with the team they had, you know, you, you know, as you said, I was never the number one jockey, but you know, sometimes I was down to three and four. Mm. And um, but you could, you could still be riding winners, you know, at, at at that level. You didn't have to be the number one jockey because they had that many runners. They'd have you know two, three, sometimes four horses in a race. And, mm. And you you always got a ride, and any one of the four, three or four could win. So mm. you're always riding winners and always getting good rides. Very few race meetings went by that you didn't have a ride or two for the stable. And in 2001, John Hawkes put you on a very good horse called Viscount. You won three races on him, Rod, a Skyline Stakes, the Sires Produce Stakes, and then the champagne stakes, and that's the one we all remember so vividly because Viscount was looming up to the leaders on top of the rise when he suddenly spooked at a seagull uh, that yeah. passed very close to him, 
And I don't think I've ever seen a horse shift as suddenly as far as Viscount did that day. Maybe encounter in the Golden Slipper. Uh, he did yeah, a very similar yeah. thing. But, but right, it's a miracle you stayed on him. Yeah, I had to hang on for dear life because he, uh, <laughs> he went pretty quick and he went a long way. Mm-hmm. And um, I was fortunate that he was he was going very well at that stage and I wasn't really in full flight. I sort of was only riding him hands and heels, so that definitely did help. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, he, um, yeah, he, he shifted quite a lot. He didn't want anything to do with the seagull, that's for sure. And um, <laughs> but, but but he was still good enough to win the race, so oh, that, yeah. that was that was something, you know. Um, at that stage, he was really he was flying the horse, you know. Yeah. You won another size produce stakes on one of your favourites, a John Hawkes horse called A Line. Prior to that, you'd won a Gosford slipper on him, a listed race. You won the Group 2 Todman trial and you gave the golden slipper of that year one hell of a shake, uh, being beaten in the last couple of strides by Catbird. You must have thought you were home 100 metres out. Well, yeah, I was... I wouldn't say I was confident, but I'd hit the front, and I thought, well, you know, he's the horse has done it pretty tough through the race, but he's still going strong. And um, yeah, it was. Uh, I thought I, I might have got home, but unfortunately, uh, my old nemesis, Mark De Montford, <laughs> on yeah, Catbird, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, come along and tipped me out in the last couple of strides. Yeah, that slipper yeah. changed complexion dramatically mid-morning. When the siren sounded at Rose Hill, I'll never forget it. Mm, and we yeah. learned that Reduce Choice had an elevated temperature and was a late scratching. It was a massive shock. Mark de Montfort was just leaving home. He was backing his car out of the garage uh, with the radio on and he heard that Reduce Choice was out. He said that he went from thinking he was 100 to 1 in the race to suddenly looking a realistic chance. Well, I think we all sort of thought exactly the same thing. I think, except you know, before the race, everybody was just well, Redoubt's choice is going to win by you mm-hmm. know, as far as he wants, and mm-hmm. it's going to be up to the rest of us to fight out trying to get second and third. You know, mm-hmm. um, but then when, as you said, when he came out, it's well, everybody's everybody's view of the race just changed dramatically, and. Um, Ours included, even though we, we were up against the eight ball anyway, we'd drawn 16 in the race, but mm. um, but certainly it was a big boost to our confidence when he was he was a late withdrawal, that's for sure. He did look uh, an out-and-out moral in the race, didn't he? Despite barrier 16, he looked to have a leg on him in that slipper. Uh, he looked head and shoulders above the rest, um, Redoubt's choice and... Mm. Oh, I think he most probably proved that later on too when he, mm. you know, he kept racing the way he did. Like, you know, when it, it's no use having yourself on. If he, if he was in the race, I think he just would have won. The 2019 English Premier Yearling Sale will be held at Oakland's Junction in Melbourne where 786 lots have been catalogued for four days of selling between the 3rd and the 6th of March. 
The Premier Sale has produced some of Australia's best performers in the last year, including Group 1 winning two-year-olds written by and Seabrook, four-time Group 1 winner Santa Ana Lane and the exciting three-year-old Ring-a-Ding-Ding. The 2019 Premier Catalogue is bursting with quality and features siblings to 73 stakes winners and eight Group 1 winners, including Boom Time, Shocking, Pinker Pinker and Seabrook. The sale will be held at a new look Oaklands complex, which is undergoing an $8 million refurbishment, making it one of the best auction houses in the world. The dates again, March 3rd to March 6th, and catalogues are available online at inglis.com.au or in hard copy for the 2019 Premier Yearling Sale. Rod, you had a few rides on a very good horse that Hawksy had called Lord Essex. He did his early racing in Victoria. Uh, then he came to Sydney. You ran second on him in a Newcastle Newmarket and I think yep. in a Cameron handicap at Newcastle. You won the Clissold Stakes on him and then came the George Ryder of 2002. He was probably a touch underrated, Lord Essex. Yeah, I think so. He was, you know, he was a very handy horse and... Um he dressed against some good horses, and you know he was a lovely horse, Lord Essex, and uh, the George Ryder. That was that was just his race that year because uh, you know the horse liked to lead. There wasn't a lot of pace in the race. Um, he got a nice soft lead, and um, he was strong enough at the end to hold out. So Showdown Lodge, who was a was a great finisher, you know. So. Um, but that was just everything aligned for him on that day, and and the race was just run to suit, and he was he was too good for him on the day, which was uh, I think a great way for the horse to to finish off. He he'd done a great job through his career, and to win the Group One was just topped it off for him. Very fitting. Yeah, exactly. Now the big twenty four hundred meter Group One that is run on Golden Slipper Day, or was it a few years back? Uh, has had more name changes than you could imagine. <laughs> Back in 2001, it was called the Mercedes Classic. And, Rod, I'd have to say this would have been the most surprising winner of your long career, Curata Storm, in a race of that quality. I think he started at 100 to 1 or a little bit better, yeah. and he yeah. won easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was definitely... Uh, a surprise, that's for sure. I actually the week before when uh, Peter Snowden rang me and booked me for the horse. Yeah. Said, you said, Oh well said, it's all right. I said I said, Are you sure? You know? What? I said, My talks he got mad or something, really. <laughs> yeah. Well he'd won <laughs> one race at Hawkesbury. Yeah, 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 the start before. He won mm. by fifteen lengths, but um, mm. I mean the horse had always showed ability, but he I I'd, I'd ridden him all the way through since since he was sort of coming to the stable and always thought he was going to be a good horse, but he just just couldn't win a race, you know. He just wouldn't win a race. And, no. And uh, then all of a sudden he he won that race at Hawkesbury and he just had a – the horse did have a couple of problems, and then he, but anyway, he, um, he just had a purple patch for that, you know, six, eight weeks where nothing – nothing was hurting him or, or whatever the problem was, wasn't a problem at that stage. And yeah. it was just a dif different horse, you know. Now, in the run that day in the Mercedes Classic, did you, in the middle stages, think, Struth, this is travelling all right? 
I'd actually, well, naturally, I'd watched a lot of those races and and, and I knew a lot of the horses that were in the race. So I'd mm. actually done all the form the night before. Mm. And I'd actually told a cousin of mine the way I was going to ride the horse. Mm. And how I finished up riding was the plan I had the night before. Yep. But when I walked out to ride him, John was at the races and he just said, ride this horse quiet, finish as close as you can, as much prize money as you can get because we want to run him in the derby. Mm. So that sort of threw my plan out the window. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, well. I you went to plan that. B, yeah. He'll kill me if I've done that, you know. Mm. If, if, uh, but anyway, when, we, when the race started, it worked out how I thought and I'm back at the tail of the field and mm. we went up around the 1,500-metre corner and I thought the pace would really slow there, which it did. Mm. And I had the stablemate in front of me, old Freemason, and, and he could actually – he was – quite a strong horse, you know, he could mm. pull a fair bit and when the pace slowed, I actually finished up outside of him and Larry couldn't hold him and he mm. bumped me out three and four deep when we went into the back straight mm. and I just went, uh, that's my cue, that was my plan, so mm. I might as well do it. <laughs> yeah. And worry so, about yeah. Hawksy later. Worry about Hawksby, Hawksy later, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, I, I was lucky I didn't have to do the horse one, so I... Uh, I dodged the wrath of John. <laughs> yeah, you did, which other jockeys didn't on occasions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's plenty of occasions I didn't dodge it either, don't worry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he in saying that, five minutes afterwards he was okay, you know, you could talk to him and settle yeah, down. Yeah. Most Group 1 winners get a few hand claps when they come back into the winner's circle, but I can remember that day he came back to scale Curata Storm in stony silence. It was pretty quiet, yeah, except for Bert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> except for Bert, the owner, he was running around in clothes and clapping and jumping up and down. Yeah. yeah. Now, three yeah, years no. later, Rod, you won that race again. This time it was called the BMW. Mm-hmm. And I know you had a, quite an opinion of this horse, Grand Zulu. Yes, John, yeah, he was – well, he was going very well at that stage. I was uh, fortunate enough to, um, you know, pick up the ride on him at, at Canberra, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Cassidy was riding him and he, and he couldn't go and uh, Wenda rang me to go and ride him and I won on him and um, finished up winning the Canberra guineas on him and – he was actually supposed to go to Hong Kong after that, but uh, mm. Gwenda worked on the owner to get him to leave him here, and then he, he should have actually won the Rose Hill Guineas. Um, he ran second to Nilo, I think, in the mm. Yeah, but anyway. Um, he should have won that as well. So both Gwenda and I sort of talked to the owner, you know, can we keep him here, keep him here, you know, I think he can win the BMW and... And he started a favourite, and anyway, there was a bit of pressure on to sort of to win the race because we'd talked him into paying, I think it was 75000 late nomination fee. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and the horse was, was good enough to win, and like he beat some really good horses that day, like Maccabi Diva and mm. uh, Mummify, I think, was one of them, yeah. But at that stage, he was going extremely well, that horse, and... Um, he had a hell of a lot of ability, but unfortunately, he never sort of um, reached his or reached his potential. I don't think. Mm. 
You're quite right, Rod. It was Niello that beat him in that Rose Hill Guineas and Elfstrom finished third. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we ran against some pretty decent horses, you know. And what a thrill it was for Gwenda Markwell to win uh, a race uh, of that stature, that prestige on Golden Slipper Day and Gwenda still working away there at Kembla Grange and does a very good job with the horses. Yeah, she's still got a very good team there and... um you know, she produces a pretty decent horse every now and then, but sort of, I was, had a bit of luck for Gwenda, sort of riding on and off for her, didn't ride for her all the time, but I think I actually won a first black tight race for her at Canberra, the Keith Nolan on, I uh, just can't remember the man's name now, but anyway, and then uh, won a bit one for her, so that was good. You mentioned Dr. Doom, your last Group 1 winner as a jockey, trained by yep. the late Guy Walter. He only won three races, Rod, uh, but one of them was a Group 1. He ran second in the gloaming stakes, though, the same year. Yeah, well, he was another one. Unfortunately, didn't reach his his potential. Um, I was lucky enough to – I rode him in his – first time I rode him was in a trial at uh, Rose Hill, and I said to the owners, I said, geez, his horse has got a magnificent stride and he covers a lot of ground, and, you know, he could be could be something. Mm. And um, anyway, we worked out how to ride him and, and get him going and everything else. And, and as I said, he ran second, and, and then he won the won the champagne uh, the ch- uh, spring champion, champion stakes spring champion mm. yeah. And but unfortunately, when he come back, his next preparation, the horse was flying. He was going extremely well. And I got on him one more and I said, geez, there's something, he's just not right. This horse is something, mm. something not right with him. And anyway, we couldn't find anything wrong with him. And he had two runs and he broke down, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but, yeah, he's another one. He could have been a very handy stayer. Um, but, you know. Not to had, be. No, unfortunately for the owners, yeah. Now, Rod, so far we've talked only about the high points. <laughs> now we deal with undoubtedly the low point of your career, certainly your supreme disappointment. In 2002, when you lost the ride on the champion Lon Rowe, who won 25 races from 36 starts before a stellar stud career. Now you'd won six races on the horse and you had actually been booked to ride him first up in the missile stakes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, as I said, that was uh, very disappointing. Um, but in saying that, I <clears throat> I always knew that uh, I wouldn't be on the horse forever. Um, I was the number two or three jockey in the stable riding the number one horse, so that was never, mm. never going to never going to last, but unfortunately, you know, the way it happened and it could have been handled a bit better, I think, and um, it wouldn't have been so bad, but I was I was pretty gutted um, to be booked for the horse and I'd sort of done all the work on him also since he'd come back into work and that preparation and then to the last minute to be pulled and swapped mm-hmm. over was, um, yeah, very disappointing, but... Um, those things happen in racing and you've got to get over them and move on, you know. You were riding a horse at one stage for Pat Webster and I can remember you telling me about him. He, a horse called Thank God You're Here. Yeah. 
He yep. won eight races from 26 starts, and you rode him in every one of those wins, including a Hawkesbury Cup. He won half yep. a million. Yeah. But Rod, you told me at the time he could have been anything, but he refused to eat. Yeah, he just didn't have the constitution. We're, we're talking about horses not, not reaching their potential. I seem to ride a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he was definitely a horse. Quite possibly could have been, you know, the smartest horse I've ridden. Thank God you're here. Mm. Um, but he just didn't have the constitution to, to uh, he couldn't handle racing. He wouldn't eat. Um, and he needed, you know, three to four weeks between runs. He was sort of a real fresh horse. You couldn't work him too hard. Mm. So he never met, never got to his his heights either. But he'd but he done a good job. As you said, he'd won eight races, won a horse cup. Mm. And, uh, and 541,000, uh, not to be scoffed at. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, and he was such a lovely, like a, to ride, he was just just the best moving horse you could you could sit on, you know, and he could accelerate like anything. And mm. but he just didn't have the constitution to to be able to race at that top grade, you know. He just wasn't tough enough. Would have been very frustrating for Pat Webster, and thank uh, goodness uh, Pat was to gain his consolation some years on with old Happy Clapper. Yeah, well, it's Happy Clapper's actually owned by the same owners. Thank God you're here, and uh, he's sort of a friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time, and uh, sort of got him and Pat together. And yeah, they've done quite well between them. So um, mm. yeah, quite happy to see that for Pat, Pat and Michael. You know. Yeah, Rod, I always felt you were the kind of ex-jockey who would make a very good trainer, but <laughs> the thought never entered your head. Uh, yeah, it did enter my head, John. But uh, mm. well, actually, I I started my apprenticeship with the view of, seeing as I'd been told so much that I wouldn't last, that I would try <laughs> and get get through my apprenticeship, and then I would start training. You know, I was at at fifteen when I started. My view was to make it to twenty one um, in the saddle, and then uh, start training. Mm. But twenty one turned into thirty, and turned into 40 and yeah and by the time I did retire you know, it's sort of a bit too late and the training game's too tough these days I think well Rod yes. setting up for a young bloke uh, would be a, a nightmare experience just getting started finding somewhere yeah. to put them and then finding yep. owners to pay for them exactly exactly just just to to get the setup and the stable and the staff and then find the horses and the owners and, yeah, it's just all too hard. And then, you know, you've got the big stables that just dominate everything these days. So mm. training, I, I I went into a different form of training, which, which might have been a wiser idea, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you're doing what you love and what you enjoy. You're at the races constantly. You're keeping in touch with old friends and making new ones. I'd yeah, imagine exactly. it's a it's a very happy experience for you, uh, this situation with racing New South Wales. Oh yes, definitely is, and um, you know, and I think it also it also helps you through your sort of to transition into your retirement as well. I mean, uh, 
it's sort of tough when you retire. Um, you know, your whole life just changes. You, you just when you spent forty years being dominated by the clock and race days, and it sort of leaves a pretty big gap in your life when you stop doing it. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, but it was was really good to sort of get into this job and. Um, as I said, it keeps keeps me in contact with people and keeps me occupied, and uh, and you also get get uh, a thrill out of it every now and then, like you've ridden a winner when, as I said, you yeah, sort of help help one of the kids out, and they they go out there and ride a winner or two. You sort of yeah, it's a buzz for a you of, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You get a bit of satisfaction out of it, you know. Now, mate, there was another recent highlight in your life when you and Alana became the very proud grandparents of young Harry. He's only eight weeks old, and his mum is your daughter, Ashley. Congratulations to all, Rod. That's great news for you. Yeah, it is fantastic, John. Thanks very much for that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, a new stage of life. Uh, uh, Nice little grandson, and um, my wife and I spend a fair bit of time getting over and seeing him whenever we can, uh, helping Ashley out with him, and... um, yeah, but it's it's a it's a great thrill in in life. Rodney Quinn, you've been an absolute ornament to your profession. You've been an ornament to the racing game. Very few jockeys in racing history did it any tougher than you did. But uh, you put all of those um, demons behind you. You went out there, the complete tradesman, the complete professional. Every time you went around, and you made a lot of friends, Rod, and you finished your great career with the respect of all. Oh, thanks very much for that, John. Yeah, I, yeah, I've done done the best I could along the way, and um, hopefully, I can still keep contributing for a while yet. <laughs> Rodney, thank you for being a part of our very first website podcast. It's been an absolute delight, and. I couldn't think of a better bloke for the job. Well, I thank you very much for thinking of me that way, John, and, uh, and nice to chat to, to you again, actually. <laughs> thank you, Rodney. We'll keep in touch. Monday, April 8th until Wednesday, April 10, 2019 are the dates for the English Australian Easter Yearling Sale, the most important and influential yearling sale in this part of the world. While the final catalogue isn't released until January, it's shaping to be one of the best ever. There's a three-quarter brother to the Autumn Sun, a full brother to Merchant Navy, a half-brother to Shoals, a full brother to Brazen Bow, a three-quarter brother to Lankan Rupee, a full sister to John Snow, a half-brother to Unforgotten, a half-sister to Catchy, a half-brother to Dundeal, a half-brother to I Victory, a half-sister to She Will Reign, a three-quarter brother to Seamus Award, and a half-brother to Pino. Stallions with progeny in the sale are Schnitzel, Fastnet Rock, I Am Invincible, Reduce Choice, Sebring, Piero, and Written Tycoon. There's a strong international flavour with sires like Lord Canaloa, Deep Impact, Frankel and Tappet. There are 42 siblings to Group 1 winners and the progeny of 35 Group 1 winning mares. The preview magazine is available now and the final catalogue will be out in January.